0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Ryan Stacy's Silver Screams, a new podcast where each installment I look at some of the defining moments of some of our most favorite horror films. I am your host and independent filmmaker, Ryan Stacy. If you joined me last time for my very first episode, I began exploring this season's theme of horror's legitimacy with 1978's Halloween. But this episode is about Carrie. The 1976 horror classic featuring Sissy Spacek in the title role as a young outcast with terrifying telekinetic powers. Calling this story based on the first published novel by author Stephen King inspiring or iconic is underplaying its value to pop culture. It is one of my favorite films and horror movies. Every time I watch it, I am immediately moved. I feel this lump in my throat, most likely invoked by Pino Donagio's melodic score for Carrie, even before we see her tucked semi-safely away from her peers in that steamy shower cubicle, there is impending dread in the dreamy melody that gets you on Carrie's side immediately. I can see your dirty pillows. Everyone will. Briss, mama. They're called breasts. <laughs> Stephen King has never shied from the fact that he nearly gave up on writing Carrie. Living in a Maine mobile home and working as a school janitor at the time, he was married and he had children. In photographs, the Kings really look like your then-typical American family. He'd been getting his short stories published in... (coughs) ...Gentlemen's magazines, which helped put a little extra food on the table. But he needed a hit, and he was working on this new one... A story about a dumpy teenager with telekinesis who gets her first menstrual cycle in the communal showers at school. Who the hell was going to read this, let alone publish it? Defeated, he tossed it into the bin. But his wife, Tabitha, fished it out, read what King had written, and really liked it. A writer herself, Mrs. King felt her husband was onto something interestingly fresh and horrifyingly relatable. So he finished it, sent the manuscript off, and in 1974, Doubleday published Carrie. I do apologize for hastily glossing over King's early years in his career here, but let's be fair, I could do entire seasons about this man and his incredible work. And perhaps I will because the argument can be made that King really helped legitimize horror. The 1980s was the decade of Stephen King where every novel and short story had an adaptation that was hitting the silver screen quarterly. Thank the heavens Tabitha King rescued Carrie from the garbage. This shocking novel is a stunning first effort by an author. Millions have read it again and again, myself included. It's gripping. My dear listeners, if you are not one of these millions, get yourself a copy and read this book right now. It's a quick ride, but it's format of first-person POV accounts and Stephen King's then-fictional 1979, cut together with post-1979 accounts from magazines, books, Senate hearings, and records, are weighty. Carrie's terror cuts itself into your mind more sharply this way. You will not be disappointed, especially if you like audiobooks. Sissy Basic reads the audiobook on Audible. I suggest you check that out as well. It's definitely an interesting and more fun way to absorb Stephen King's writing in this novel. Brian De Palma held his casting calls for Carrie jointly with his friend George Lucas, who was also casting his own movie, a space opera entitled Star Wars. It is famously known that actors tested for both projects, going from Carrie on over to Star Wars and vice versa. Let's stop for a moment and picture the late, great Carrie Fisher auditioning for Carrie White, or William Catt, De Palma's eventual Tommy Ross, auditioning as Luke Skywalker with that big, beautiful mane of golden curls. It's fun to envision, and these moments actually happened. A great source of material in the history of Carrie's production can be found on the home media's release's special features. I've seen these several times during the preparation of my Carrie fan film, As I viewed the multiple pieces the discs offer, I learned so much about the detail and thought that really went into the film's production, that takes what we see on film today and just goes so much deeper. It's great supplemental material. Through the audition process I mentioned a moment ago, it's important to note that, as the way things typically do go in Hollywood, no one wanted the actress that would win the titular role. Brian De Palma was not interested in seeing Sissy Spacek for the part, but did anyway. I'm sure that Sissy's being married to the production designer Jack Fisk may have helped her chances of getting past the director's lack of interest. She came through the process with stringy hair streaked with mayonnaise and a sailor dress her mother had made her as a child. She'd let the hem out. These touches were perfect for Carrie, and Sissy won the role. Piper Laurie, the actress that portrayed Margaret White, Carrie's mother, thought the film was a comedy. Laurie mentions that the script was very humorous to her, and the humor is what drew her out of her then-semi-retirement. Laurie is having fun as Mrs. White, you can tell. It was not until later on anyone clued Ms. Laurie into the seriousness of their film. Either way, what a wickedly delightful performance to be tasked with turning in. The film was fully cast with an ensemble of wonderful, fresh faces for Bates High students. Welcome Back Cotters, John Travolta scored antagonist Billy Nolan, lover and cohort to Nancy Allen's Christine Hargensen, the latter's breakthrough role. She was literally on her way out of town when she got the audition for Carrie, having given up hope she'd have success in acting. Alan would also find love through this film, having begun a relationship with and eventually marrying director Brian De Palma. PJ Souls, who came up in our last episode, got the part of co Norma, even a young Eddie McClurg, one of cinema's most gifted character actors, probably most famously known as the secretary in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, appeared as Helen Shires. Betty Buckley, the sympathetic gym teacher Miss Collins, also voiced the little boy that bullied Carrie on his bicycle at the beginning of the film. But this wouldn't be her only touches on the legacy of Carrie, as she'd go on to play Margaret White in the 1988 Broadway musical adaptation. Carrie was filmed in Southern California for around $1.8 million. The production would showcase iconic camera angles and movements, with moody lighting and score filling out what they were unable to achieve with practical effects. This was long before the heavy usage of CGI. Miniatures were created to destroy the White's home, including a scene featuring Carrie raiding stones on it as a young girl, but this was ultimately cut. It would seem that there were a few cutscenes like this that were more firmly in line with the novel's material. However, the stones can still be seen dropping through the ceiling during the film's climax. All films have stressful moments that sometimes rear their ugly heads. Brian De Palma fired his director of photography and replaced him after shooting had begun. P.J. Souls's eardrum was ruptured during the Renegade Firehose sequence. But save for these bits, I cannot find any stories detailing a troubled production. For all intents and purposes, Carrie was a great shoot. Even to this day, the talent behind it still speak very fondly on their memories of it, which seem to check out because Carrie released on time on November 3rd, 1976. Just let me say that Carrie is a true horror story. Not a manufactured one made up of spare parts of old Vincent Price classics, but a real one. In which horror grows from the characters themselves. The scariest horror stories, the ones by M.R. James, Edgar Allan Poe, and Oliver Onions, are like this. They develop their horror out of the people they observe that happens here too. <laughs> Does it ever? That was a quote from the late Roger Ebert's review of Carrie via his website, rogerebert.com. It seems weird hearing words from a beloved critic lifting a horror movie up, right? But this happened a lot in these days. So why? Because the modern horror genre really was in its infancy in 1976. Before Carrie, we had Jaws giving birth to the summer blockbuster in 1975. The Exorcist mortified the world in 1973. It's not that we didn't have horror movies before these titles. We did. But what we did not often see were legitimate filmmakers tackling horror stories. And when these guys did, they were successfully innovative films. Carrie was innovative and terrifying for sure. But what is most interesting to explore here is what came by way of their peers for Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie. In 1977, the two co-stars of Carrie found themselves the recipients of Academy Award nominations. Spacek for leading actress and Laurie for supporting actress, respectively. This was the second time we saw this in the 70s as Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn were nominated for their turns in The Exorcist Laurie had not been on a silver screen since 1961's The Hustler, co-starring opposite Paul Newman, having been talked out of her 15-year retirement to appear as Margaret White. Sissy Spacek was best known for her BAFTA-nominated performance opposite Martin Sheen in Badlands, where she portrayed a spree-killer running amok with her murderous lover. Raw dramatic performances were not new for these women, and their chemistry in Carrie Was worth the nominations. Just once, so rooted in the horror genre were the bastard children of nomination season. These wouldn't be the last big nods for the genre though, as Sigourney Weaver would get an Academy nomination for 1986's Aliens. Extra kudos should be given for this, as it's a sci-fi horror sequel with the BAFTAs recognizing her work in the first film, but the Academy did not. Then, the early 90s saw Jodie Foster Who was also nominated in 1977, winning an Oscar for her horror turn as Chloe Starling in that year's Best Picture winner, The Silence of the Lambs. All of the titles I've mentioned were innovative, groundbreaking motion pictures. They feature so many elements and so many performances that were unlike anything the world had seen, Carrie included. With each year's awards ceremony, As these films were being nominated for and winning awards, the fresh visionaries behind them were being inducted into the Academy. This was creating a slightly better voting pool amongst peer groups, plus audience and press reception had to make these films impossible to ignore. So what happened? Why don't we see that often anymore? Well we do, and we don't. Occasionally, horror movies break through and find legitimate recognition by mass praise and award nominations, but rarely do they win. One might think of, in recent years, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which won Best Picture, or Jordan Peele's script for Get Out taking home Oscar gold. While these awards are wonderful prizes for the teams behind them, actors included, to say that horror performances being snubbed is still an awards season constant. The best example of this would be Toni Collette's terrifying work in Hereditary. She dazzled audiences, as she normally does, yet it was not strong enough for some unknown reason to be recognized for being just that by her peers. Really really good work. They'd recognized her before in the sixth sense as Cole's distraught single mom. Why not this one? What is so special, or unique, about Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie's work, specifically, that got them nominated? First, let's look at their fellow nominees. According to Oscars.com, this ceremony was held on March 28, 1977. This was the year Rocky took Best Picture, Logan's Run, and King Kong got tied trophies for their special effects achievements. Another horror hit was nominated this night as well. The Omen won Best Original Score for Jerry Goldsmith. Now focusing in on the ladies' acting categories, the winners, Faye Dunaway for leading, Beatrice Strait for supporting, were for the film Network, a motion picture featuring driven and ambitious women working against a male-dominated Network news team. I feel the argument could be made that the performances in Carrie just didn't seem to be able to hold a candle to a year that was yet again an ode to the Hollywood Boys Club. And if this were the reason these women were winning the prizes, then Jodie Foster should have definitely grabbed the trophy over Beatrice Strait, because this was the year she was nominated for Taxi Driver at age 15. With further review of these nominees, I'm saddened that Lee Remick was not featured over one of these more forgettable performances of that year she was incredible in the omen but oscar had let carrie in the door for the dance there wasn't room for two horror performances in the best actress category seems one was enough and that was pushing it but the loss didn't hurt lori or SpaceX's careers on the contrary Spacek would win her oscar four years later country-western superstar Loretta Lynn in 1980's Coal Miner's Daughter. Laurie has stayed working, popping into television series and movies, including more genre films like 1998's The Faculty. We have many more titles and works after Carrie to admire. It would just be the cherry on a perfect horror cake if these forces of nature on film had won film's biggest honors for these turns. Best acting awards are often handed out to performances where the star undergoes an unusual physical transformation, aided by prosthetic makeup and weight gains and losses, making them unrecognizable from their movie star selves. They are often leading stories about vile, horrific scenarios that are so harrowing they must overcome possible odds to persevere. These Olympians of Screens, so beautiful and perfect, are so brave for these vulnerable moving turns. They are not foreign concepts or story elements, all factoring into similar story structures that play out in drama, war films, and horror movies. Through these scant moments of recognition, it proves there is room at the table for horror. Everyone just needs to make room. In 2018, I directed a short-length fan film entitled She Burns in Hell, Accounts from Chamberlain, Maine. The story is centered around survivors of prom night and how it rocked them all to their very cores. I leaned heavily on Stephen King's source material, hoping to better adapt some of the elements that often get left out of Carrie adaptations. What we ended up doing was marrying Brian De Palma's iconic motion picture even more richly to the source material that inspired it. Carrie may not have won any Oscar gold, but the true prizes at won were bigger than that. The film is a true horror icon celebrating 45 years of discussions, remakes, musical adaptations, merchandising, even a loosely based sequel, The Rage, Carrie 2, in 1999. Depending on which genre circles you run in, Gary might be mentioned and praised more than the other films of its era that we briefly mentioned in this episode. I know it is in mine. Thanks for listening to Ryan Stacy's Silver Screams. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this episode about Oscar's complicated relationship with horror performances by way of Gary. The show is written and performed by me, Ryan Stacy. I co-produce it along with my partner at Concept Media Films, Sean Burkett, who appears in this episode as Roger Ebert. Join me next time where, as I promised in episode 1, we will be discussing my favorite horror movie of all time 1996's Scream. So until then.